0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
2: this podcast is brought to you by audible.com the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa today for details <laughs> This is the Starship Sova, show number 89, everybody,
3: welcome!
2: Hello and welcome to, yes, Oral Delights, show number 89, I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Fun show today, give you a little heads up what's coming in today's show... We have flash fiction by Jay Lake. We have a fact article by Corey Doctorow. We also have another fact article by the English Assassin. Main fiction tonight comes from our very own Matthew Sanborn Smith. New titles is in there as well. And we have, which I forgot to play last week, a little audio article by Jeff Carlson about his gunfight story. So apologies, Jeff, for not playing that last week. Totally slipped my mind. So do stick around and enjoy the show. Before all that, I'd just like to give you a little editorial. And actually, the editorial today is nothing to do with... It's a bit of a meta-editorial. It's a bit to do with the forums. We're not going to talk about the sofa notes this week. It's the forums. The forums, as we know it, are going to close. So, what's going to happen? I don't actually know. I'll put a little post on the forums over there just to say what's happening. Basically, the website that this all runs on is on sitting on a different server that can't recognise or doesn't recognise the the other, the forum server. And Paul, the old webmaster who's running the forums over there, is gonna actually close that web server. There's only mine sitting on it, and I'm getting it for free, and he's paying fifty pounds a month. Do you know what I mean? And Bless him, you kind of go on like that. So, you know, he's got to do that. Which brings me to the conclusion that what happens to the forums? Let me know. Drop us an email. Do we close it and, you know, just keep... Well, I was actually looking out for Google Wave to see if that would be an idea. Or do we just restart it? Because the problem is... They don't talk to each other. And although there's been a kind of program written that will kind of communicate with this server and that server, I'm not in a position to kind of transfer all the, the data over. I just don't understand it. So, and you know, people I've spoke to doesn't understand it as well. So the problem lies is we can set up a new forum, but none of the data from that old forum will be there. So do we go with a, a forum? Do we go with just comments on a blog? Do we wait for Google Wave? I really don't know. Do you know what I mean? This is the, the dilemma we're in. it's We've got a, probably about a month, I think, before the, the switch gets flicked. So drop us some emails. Do we need a forum still? Do we not? Do we wait out for Google Wave? Do we just keep comments on the blog posts? Or do we set up a new forum with no data? Hopefully we can still get some of the... You'll be still members, fingers crossed. But... Let us know because, like I say, it's one of them things that's approaching. You know, it's one of these like kind of tidal wave things. You know, it's coming. And if you can just bear with me one more second, you know, one more little shout out. Do you know Starship Sova is everyone? Do you know what I mean? It's not just me kind of putting out this show. It's get it gets built from the ground up from everyone. You know, and I think that's what makes Starship Sova special. You know, it's all the way together. Do you know what I mean? I'm just kind of stick things together and. It goes out because everyone helps. If you want to help, you know, if you actually want to help and come on the Starship so, I'm always looking for material and help. <laughs> God, the well is bottomless <laughs> when it comes to me for help for this show. Do you know what I mean? I can go deep. Bye, I can go deep. But if you want to, do you know what I mean? It's a great time to get involved. You know, flash fiction, or what I call flash fiction, you know, up to say 16,000 16, words, 1,600 words. It could be science fiction, it could be fantasy, it could be horror. Do you know? What it has to do is get past Grant Stone, our slush monkey editor. Do you know what I mean? If you can do that, then it'll get on the show. So send it over, starshipsover at gmail.com. Also, do you know what I mean? Illustrators, illustrations, I would love, love, love to get every show that I put out to have a bit of artwork to accompany it. Do you know what I mean? If you want to be involved in that way, you know, I can send out stories to you that I've got, like, in the audio set already done. If you want to put a picture to that story, that would be fantastic. You know, that would be amazing for everybody who listens to Starship Sofa, who follows Starship Sofa. And also, it doesn't end, you know, like I said, the well is deep. It doesn't end there. If you want to do a fact article... If you've got some quirky little niche or, it doesn't even have to be a quirky little niche. If you've got a fact that you want to tell, it might just be a one-off, you know, 10-minute article. If you want to do that, get in touch with us. I mean, even if you want to do like a regular slot on Starship Super, I'll consider that. So, you know, if you've got an idea, just look at Fiction Crawler, just look at English Assassin. You know, these are ideas that are kind of, now everyone seems to enjoy, you know. If, if you want to do that, if you want to come on, get in touch with us. And narrations, you know, narrators are kind of a vital part of the cog. If you want to narrate, if you've got like a little bit because I've got no talent whatsoever when it comes to that side of it. If you've noticed, not once have I ever done that. But if you want to have a narrator of a story, you know, I can send you a little kind of tiny story, 400 words. Or I can send you one big meaty 18,000 word story, you know. But if you want to narrate, get in touch with us. Male, female, English, American, anything. Do you know what I mean? Just get in touch with us, and we'll take it from there. Always looking for narrators, programmers. <laughs> that sounds a bit quite. Professional. But I'm actually looking for an iPhone developer. I want to get the kind of an iPhone app for Starship Sover to go on the iPhone. If anybody knows anybody, you know, obviously I've got to kind of probably dip my hand in my pocket there now and pay for this. But if anybody knows anybody or can point me in the right direction of some good developers that i'm going to kind of rip, <laughs> rip us off, you know what I mean? Please get in touch with us. Email address for everything there is starshipsover at gmail.com. So I think we'll get into a little bit of flash fiction. Comes from Jay Lake. Who is Jay Lake? Jay Lake is the award winning author of four novels and over 240 short stories. Actually he's got a new novel out now called Green. So do check that out. I'll put a link on the front of the website. He is the acclaimed anthology editor. Winner of the 2004 John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer. Multiple Hugo and World Fantasy Award nominee. 2008 Sidewise Award Finalist, 2008 John W. Campbell Memorial Award Finalist, the other, that was actually the other Campbell Award, and he was first place in the Writers of the Future contest. It is narrated today by our good friend, Mr. Jim Campanella. You can actually catch Jim Campanella over on the Sofa Notes, yes. Although I didn't mention the Sofa Notes in the editorial, I will certainly throughout the show keep on mentioning it. But J.J. Campanella was one of the guests on The Sofa notes, And a fine guest he is as well. If you want to find out who J.J. Campanella is, the man himself, pop over to The Sofa notes. So, the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present The
3: Git by J Lake. Once upon a time, there was a little git whose prospects were limited, even for a git. He was of low caste, and his mid-arms were permanently bent "'in an attitude suggestive "'of the dance of regretful obsequy. Nonetheless, in accordance with the best fables, "'and against all reasonable experience, "'of git kind, "'he set forth to find his own fortune. "'After a time the little git "'came upon a bush of ghosts, "'under which a dog sat muttering to itself. "'A talking dog,' the git thought. "'Is it not a wonder that the dog "'is brave enough to sit beneath a bush of ghosts?' "'Go away,' said the dog. "'interrupting the little git's thoughts. "'I'm otherwise engaged.'
0: "'I only stop for you,'
3: the git said. but "'I will dance the dance of appeased irritation by way of apology.' "'He set down his bindle and began to shuffle in a circle, "'tossing his head and arms in the prescribed motions. "'The distraction so enraged the dog that it leapt up barking, "'bit the little git on one of his legs, "'and chased him down the road a ways.' the both of them pursued by howling ghosts shaken loose from the bush. Tired, lacking both his bindle and his dignity, the little git finally came to a stream, burbling among purple rocks. Each boulder glittered like the rings on a giant's finger, while the water was silky as his mother's kiss. The git stared at his reflection in a pool and thought sadly of home and family, trying to summon his visions of fortune back from the pit of despair where the muttering dog had banished them. His reflection was broken by a whole-whiskered catfish, who blew three bubbles, rolled its eyes, and complained, "'You're blocking my light.'
0: "'I'm sorry,' said the git. "'I only meant to rest and think of home, but I will dance the dance of gladdened hearts to make you
3: whole again.' He began to jerk and jiggle in the prescribed motions until the catfish squirted him with water. "'Having seizures does not help me,' The fish shouted. Move on. Find some other waterhole to foul with your presence.
0: But where shall I go? What shall I do? My life is so, so lacking in direction.
3: The catfish laughed, bitter and cold. You ask a fish for direction. We swim up when we're fingerlings and float down when we're dead. There's no direction in the stream bed but what the water gives you. "'However, I believe there's a man down the road a ways, selling salvation. "'Go see him.' "'With one last insolent squirt, "'the catfish was gone into the purple-shadowed depths of his pool. "'The little git wiped the water from his face, "'hopped across the stream on purple boulders, "'and followed the road in search of a man selling salvation. "'Instead he found a curious fellow, "'gray-skinned with a large head and dark almond eyes.' "'standing next to a metal saucer large enough for a troop of monkeys to live inside. "'Excuse me,' said the little git uncertainly.
0: "'But are you the man selling salvation?'
3: "'I am not a man,' the curious fellow said proudly. "'I am a grey, a scientist, probing the manifold ways of life in this universe.'
0: "'Is there somewhere in the manifold universe?' or at least along this road where I could find salvation.
3: The grey frowned, then leaned close to the git. Happiness is where you find it, he said. I could fit you with an implant. The little git danced the dance of abject gratitude, then headed down the road looking for happiness. He knew he would find it sooner or later if he just looked hard enough. Behind him, the dog dined on catfish, then the grey dined on dog soup. Then the ghosts from the bush frightened the grey to death. The saucer's A.I., desperately lonely and imprinting on the last intelligence that it had encountered, followed the little git, scooped him up, and took him on a lifetime of adventure between the stars, searching for happiness all the way. It goes without saying, copyright
2: is Mr. GLX. Next up, we have a fact article by our good friend, Corey Doctorow, and it comes from The Guardian online. It is narrated by, as
4: usual, Mr. Paul Kijiji, processdiary.blogspot.com. Search is too important to leave to one company, even Google. It may seem as unlikely as a publicly edited encyclopedia, but the internet needs publicly controlled search. Article first published by Cory Doctorow in theguardian.co.uk on Tuesday the 2nd of June 2009. Search is the beginning and the end of the internet. Before search, there was the idea of an organised, hierarchical internet set up along the lines of the Dewey Decimal System. Again and again, net pioneers tried to build such systems but they were always out-competed by the messy hairball of the real world. As Wikipedia shows, building consensus about what goes where in a big org chart is hard, and the broader the subject area, the harder it gets. Melvin Dewey didn't predict computers. He also mixed Islam in with Sufism and gave table-knocking psychics their own category. A full-contact sport like the internet just doesn't lend itself to a priory categorization. Enter search. Who needs categories if you can just pile up all the world's knowledge every which way and use software to find the right document at just the right time? But this is not without risk. Search engines accumulate near complete indexes of our interests, our loves, our hopes and aspirations. Our relationship with them is as intimate as our relationship with our lovers, our confessors, our therapists. What's more, the way that search engines determine the ranking and relevance of any given website has become more critical than the editorial berth at the New York Times combined with the chief spots at the major TV networks. Good search engine placement is make-or-break advertising. It's ideological mindshare. It's relevance. contrary being poorly ranked by a search engine makes you irrelevant, broke, and invisible. What's more, search engines routinely disappear websites for violating unpublished invisible rules. Many of these sites are spammers, link farmers, malware sneezers, and other gamers of the system. That's not surprising, Every complex ecosystem has its parasites, and the internet is as complex as they come. The stakes for search engine placement are so high that it's inevitable that some people will try anything to get the right placement for their products, services, ideas and agendas. Hence the search engine's prerogative of enforcing the death penalty on sites that undermine the quality of search. It's a terrible idea to vest this much power with one company, even one as fun, user-centred and technologically excellent as Google. It's too much power for a handful of companies to wield. The question of what we can and can't see when we go hunting for answers demands a transparent, participatory solution. There's no dictator benevolent enough to entrust with the power to determine our political, commercial, social and ideological agenda. This is one for the people. Put that way, it's obvious. If search engines set the public agenda, they should be public. What's not obvious is how to make such a thing. We can imagine a public open process to write search engine ranking systems crawlers, and the other minutia, But can an ad-hoc group of netheads marshal the server resources to store copies of the entire internet? Could we build such a thing? It'd be as unlikely as a non-commercial, volunteer-written encyclopedia. It would require vast resources, but it would have one gigantic advantage over the proprietary search engines. Rather than rely on weak, security through obscurity to fight spammers, creeps, and parasites, such a system could exploit the powerful principles of peer review that are the gold standard in all other areas of information security. Google itself was pretty damned unlikely. Two grad students in a garage going up against vast, well-capitalized mature search companies like Vista. remember them? Search is volatile and we'd be nuts to think that Google owns the last word in organizing all human knowledge.
2: And there you go, you can find Corey as usual at his craphound.com or over at Boing Boing. Do pop over and say hello, it is much appreciated that Corey's letting me play these articles. Next up we have the English assassin. Simon,
5: what have you got, Squire? Hi Tony. English Assassin here again, and uh, today I want to discuss uh, one of my favourite authors, Mervyn Peake, and uh, have a look uh, at his fiction. He's perhaps uh, not got the largest uh, body of work in terms of uh, his fiction output, but um, to do uh, to him justice, uh, I'm going to uh, make my task a little easier and uh, split, uh, split my discussion up into two halves. So today I'm going to just discuss limit my discussion to uh, Peake's most famous work, the Gorman Garson novels. Uh, I shall leave his uh, lesser work for another day. I say fiction of Mervyn Peake, of course, because he's more than just uh, a prose writer. He is uh, a poet and playwright and an artist of of some repute too. However, I'm even less well qualified to talk about those other strings to his bow, so I'll... Uh, i 'll stick to what I know and i 'll try not to kid myself that I know more than I do, which is very level but i 'll quickly tell you that he is a, considered a witty poet with an eye and an ear for the absurd, an artist of wide ranging ability and a respected critically respected if unsuccessful playwright however it 's his fiction that has won him the most fans and it 's his fiction i 'm going to talk about. I must confess that I came to um, Peak late in life um, and via the BBC TV production of Gormenghast, not directly through his books. Um, under ordinary circumstances, I hate approaching a book via a film or a TV da- adaptation. I much sooner experience the book untarnished. Indeed, I'd sooner ruin my enjoyment of a film from reading the book first than the other way around. And that's simply because I love books far more than I love films. Still, the BBC production of Gormenghast is very good, and it did nothing to dull the wonder of the novel. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Really, I should tell you about what the Gormenghast trilogy is all about. Well, for starters, calling it the Gormenghast trilogy is probably a bit of a misnomer, really. It it isn't a trilogy. It just happens to be three books, because... Peak died before he could write any others, so um, in a literal sense, it's certainly not a trilogy. And while uh, Castle Gormangast, the setting of the the, the books, has a do- it certainly has a dominating presence. Really, the story is of Titus Groan, um, heir of Gormangast rather than of Gormangast itself. However, his his actual presence in the novels, especially the first one is relatively minor. The first novel, called Titus Grown, tells the circumstances of Titus's birth. The second, called Gormenghast, tells of his childhood and adolescence. And the third, Titus Alone, tells of him leaving Gormenghast, or trying to. Presumably the rest of the unwritten series would have told us further about Titus's life, presumably ending in his death, although we can only imagine what the, how the story would have played out. So what is Gormenghast? Well, it's a castle, but it's more than a castle. It's a it's a castle, it's a city, it's a world. It's crumbling, it's oppressive, sprawling, baroque, epic, claustrophobic, gothic, romantic, paradoxical, sinister, freudian and satanic. It defies simple Newtonian descriptions. Instead said it seems to lurk in half-remembered dreams. Its corridors are beyond any simple A to Z street map. It is a castle, ancient and eternal. Its pointless and Byzantine traditions dominate all who live there, and all those who live under its shadow. In the first book, Titus is just a newborn baby, yet his birth triggers events which will threaten the traditions of the castle. Events that will take the form of rebellion, the form of my uh, single favourite character in literature, the beautifully brilliant, twisted kitchen boy come good, or come bad. Steerpike, who masterminds a meteoric rise, very much in a picaresque tradition. This rise up to the very top of Gormenghast's hierarchy. The rise, in fairness, is at least equally possible due to the ghastly stupidity of the uh, idiotic nobility who uh, live in the castle, as much as anything to do with Steerpike's inner genius. Unlike the terminally bored royal family who live there, Steerpike is ambitious and power-hungry, seeing and seizing his opportunities to infiltrate the upper reaches of the castle, which he does so with ease. Today, I suppose we'd call Steerpike an anti-hero, but this is, seems an overused term and doesn't seem to do him justice. He certainly sees inequality at work in the castle. He himself is a victim of that inequality, and he even occasionally plays with the concept of equality when trying to woo the lovable Lady Fuchsia, Titus's daydreaming and melancholy sister. However, Steerpike is no rebel hero trying to bring down a totalitarian regime. He's more Edmund from King Lear than Luke Skywalker. Actually, the first two parts of the trilogy have more than just a touch of Shakespearean drama to them, being one part farce, two parts tragedy. Or is that the other way around? I don't know. Anyway, Steerpike's ambitions aren't just to smite Titus, who he considers unworthy of the old ship of Gormangast, but to actually replace him and we are left in no doubt that Steerpike's Gormenghast would be both terrible and terrifying, whereas Gormenghast, as we find it in the books, is just stultifyingly moronic and repressive. Still, we all have our faults. And despite, or maybe because of his, I find Steerpike strangely lovable and fascinating. The rest of the uh, principal characters in the castle are equally fascinating, although, sadly, I don't really have time to describe them all here. But like Dickens' peak cast his stories with grotesque caricatures. Their very names seem to conjure something of their character, although you couldn't say necessarily why. There's the idiotic Nanny Slag, the fanatically loyal Mr. Flay, Dr. Prune Squalor, and his man-obsessed sister, Irma Prune Squalor, and the twins, Clara and Cora, and a host of other characters that are equally marvellous to behold. Some of the good guys, some of the bad, but they are all driven by their motives, not by a simple black and white morality. No matter how selfish their motives may be, all the characters seem to somehow transcend the page. None are realistic as such, but all are somehow surreally real. The novel, written in the 1940s, is incredibly verbose compared to most 20th century fiction. And this may be a problem for those raised purely on a diet of much terser prose styles. It's like the Godfather films set in the ultimate ruin of a gothic cathedral. It's non-immediate, it's not MTV, but the best stuff never is. It's well worth persevering with. Lie back and relax. After all, what's the rush? It's a highly poetic novel. Some also say it's boring and that nothing happens. Don't believe them. There's literally too much for me to describe or even attempt to in the time i have here i've hinted at steerpike's infiltration and rebellion but much more happens than just that just to give you a taster there's an exile a fire suspicion betrayal snobbery romance a feral sweetheart a flood a suicide and murder several murders in fact it's true to say that it isn't a heavily plotted novel but anyone who tells you that nothing happens is In a word, wrong. The third novel, called Titus Alone, is a very different beast from the first two. Peake abandons the highly evocative prose of the first two novels, instead adopting a more modernist and overtly absurdist tone. On first reading, the third volume really threw me. I missed the baroque brilliance of the first two novels. I missed Gormenghast, and most of all, I missed Theopike. Instead, the novel follows the first adult steps of Titus as he leaves the traditions and boredom of his home and enters a surrealistic city where even weirder people await him. Titus alone is a modernist through the looking glass. It's like calf acid. Nothing is real. Everything is a metaphor for for something, but you don't know what. There is no uh, internal Newtonian logic between the, the first two volumes and this so don't even look for it. In this novel, there's cars, there's modernity. There is an indeternal sense of horror that builds through the novel, which no doubt reflects the deterioration of Peake's own health at the time of writing. Sadly, Titus alone was the last book Peake wrote before his untimely death. We can only imagine where he would have taken this had he lived. Anyway, as I said, on first reading, I didn't really like Titus alone. It certainly was my least favourite of the three. However, perversely, today it's my favourite. And that, I think, is uh, one of the strengths of Mervyn Peake as a writer, that he's well worth revisiting. There's not many writers I'd say that about. While Mervyn Peake never finished the Titus stories, luckily for us he did finish one or two other bits of uh, fiction here and there. In fairness, none of it reaches quite the heights of the Gorman's Glass trilogy but then little else does in my opinion however all his other fiction is definitely worth reading and that's where I'm going to uh, leave things for the moment I shall pick up from uh, where I've left off and um, uh, discuss Peake's other fiction output which includes his novel Mr. Pie his collection of short stories Boy in Darkness and other stories and and the novella length letters from a lost uncle that's all from me back to you tony and actually this is a two-part article english assassin
2: has delivered for us i've got the next one and i will put it in next week's show so we'll find out more about mervyn peak next week simon thank you so much for that <laughs> Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to AudiblePodcast.com slash Sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to AudiblePodcast.com slash Sofa for your free audiobook. Just looking over at Audible.com, Christine Catherine Rush is their guest editor. Christine Catherine Rush actually used to do, edit fantasy and science fiction, and she's got she's picked some stories out there. Connie Willis' Even the Queen and other short stories, that's in there. Kindred by Octavia Butler, she's picked Spook Country, William Gibson. Uglies, Scott Westerfield. Polaris, Jack McDivitt. Coyote, Alan Steele. Small Favour, Jim Butcher. And there's actually many of Christine Catherine Rush's books in Audible as well. Duplicate Effort, a retrieval artist novel. I think out of all of them that Christine Catherine Rush has picked, I would probably go with Kindred by Octavia Butler. 10 hours, 59 minutes, narrated by Kim Staunton. I'll see if I can get a little play here. Me? The police were here. They
0: thought you had done this to me. Oh, that. They were sheriff's deputies. The neighbors called them when you started to scream. They questioned me, detained me for a while. That's what they call it. But you convinced them that they might as well let me go. Good. I told them it was an accident. My fault. There's no way a thing like this could be your fault. That's debatable. But it certainly wasn't your fault. Are you still in
2: trouble? I don't think so. They're sure I did it, but there's no
0: witnesses, and you won't cooperate. Also, I don't think they can figure out how I could have hurt you in the way you were hurt. I closed my eyes again, remembering...
2: It's strange you forget actually how good Octavia Butler is, do you know what I mean? This is what the kind of critics say. Kindred is a shattering work of art with much to say about love, hate, slavery and racial dilemmas then and now. That was from the Los Angeles Herald. The publisher says, the first science fiction written by a black woman, Kindred has become the cornerstone of African-American literature. And it's funny, you, like you say, you do forget about the likes of Octavia Butler. I read or listened to Fledgling, which was a fantastic story. You know, she's also got Parable of Talents there as well. This could be your free audiobook, Kindred, Octavia Butler. So log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. Get your free Kindred by Octavia Butler. <laughs> Right, next up is our good friend, Mr. Matthew Sanborn-Smith. See how I come to this story. I got an email off.
6: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands.
2: grant our good friend grant who actually is the slush monkey who kind of sorts out all the short stories and he just mentioned this story by matthew he says you want to read that story and it was published in the online magazine blood blade and thruster and i hadn't even heard of blood blade and thruster and i went over there and read this story and this story is just excellent and soon as i you know i kind of read it i knew straight away who the narrator's got to be and it has to be mr Ray sizemore you know what i mean they're just two blended so good together and Matthew's constantly now putting out this kind of fantastic work, and do look out for more work by Matthew Sanborn Smith. I think this guy is going to be; it's going to take off for Matthew. If he's putting out stuff like this, it's just fantastic. So, the
6: Starship Sofa and her oral delights
2: is very proud to present
6: the loneliness of the long-distance diplomat by Matthew Sanborn Smith. First appeared in Blood Blade and Thruster Magazine, Volume Two, Issue Four. Filthy! Looking back from the first door, Vron cursed. Stupid Zek must have activated the cloaking device without Vron's knowledge, and there beyond the dead end of the road sat their ship in bright orange camouflage among the greens and browns of earth vegetation. Nothing to be done about it now. It lay nearly ten lengths away. The three legics had walked to the first place they saw. No sense in wearing themselves out. The day was invigorating, as mild as many Earth days get, but the damned humans built their nests so far apart. And one per family. Extravagant. Bron stretched up and rang the doorbell, dripping with envy and goo. As soon as the treaties were signed, he'd snap up the secrets of Earther knowledge and see the old Legic homeworld covered with doorbells. These fools had no idea of the possibilities of this technology. Why not put them on windows, for instance? Gravy! The ideas just kept coming. A male Earther, stringy and stubbly, opened the door. He took a blink to focus on them. Hey, the Earther said. Take me to your leader, Vron said in practiced English. Please, Please. Zek added from over Vron's shoulder. Well, that would be me, the Earther said. You are the leader of the peoples of Earth? Vron asked, taking a second glance at the Grey House. By human standards, it was a pretty modest place out in the sticks, which is why they chose it. The cities were overwhelming, and it didn't seem like the sort of place the Earthers would put up their leader. Besides that, Krogar added telepathically, What are the odds that we'd get the leader first shot out of the box? No, the Earther said. I'm the leader of me, Doug Schmidt. See, I'm a sovereign state unto myself, having declared my independence just... He checked his watch. Well, just about seventeen hours ago. Quit my job, too. I'm tired of all the bullshit, you know what I mean? I'm afraid I don't, Fran admitted. Whatever, don't worry about it, little pal. I'm not big on foreign policy, but since you're here, I got to shout out back if you guys want to set up an embassy or something. Not the whole thing, because I got like my rake and my paint cans and stuff, but you guys are small anyway. Just clear off part of the bench and set yourselves up. I can't sit down for talks right now, I'm making tacos. Maybe tomorrow we can like make a peace agreement or something, okie dokie. We will consider your offer, Doug Schmidt, but our business takes us elsewhere at the moment. Farewell. The three little men walked down the stained, cracked driveway. Don't look at each other till he goes back inside, Vron mentally told his officers. They all looked back and waved. Doug pointed at them from the screen door. My point exactly, Doug yelled. Bureaucratic bullshit can't even make a decision your nation is at least three times the size of mine simplify what do you make of that zek thought to his two companions deranged lunatic thought fron isn't that redundant krogar asked if it is i'm sticking with it he's nutty enough to warrant the repetition come on guys next house Their boots kicked through the thick lawn across the street. The land wasn't as neatly manicured out here as it was where the houses were larger. Ron stepped on a soft spot and looked down at hundreds of spastic little creatures zipping back and forth over his boot print. Oh, man, he thought privately. I I hope they're they're not important. This house was much like the last one, only blue. Before they reached the doorbell... An Earther stepped out of a doorway at the end of the house. The doorway was large enough that Vron could pilot a ship through it. Take me to your leader, Vron said. Please, Zek added. That's cute, the man at the door said. He was wider than the sovereign nation of Doug Schmidt, and had longer hair but just as much stubble. He wore a black shirt with the words, "'Lord of the Dance Rings, written upon it in a shade of yellow that was offensively bright. "'You got the line and the look, the little green men thing going on. Very cute.' "'Thank you,' Bron said. "'But I do actually want you to take me to your leader.' "'The Earther seemed half-occupied with the communication device at his mouth. "'You know, it was played and played and played so much in the mid to late twentieth century that—' Not only did it become a cliché, it went beyond cliché, to the point where we fought like hell to scrub it from our cultural memory. The communicator glowed, and gray smoke billowed from the man's mouth. Vron had heard these people still sent smoke signals, and he glanced into the distance to see if he could spot the other end of the conversation. If you'll just please take me, Vron started. The Earther said, but you reach back into the dark place we've all tried to forget, and you've revived this. Sir. But the thing is, it's been so long that this take on it seems fresh and clever. It's just... Sir. It's just cute is what it is. Sir, you need to understand. We are actual extraterrestrials. Oh, yeah, I have no doubt about that. That ridge above your eyebrows, that sort of spongy, feathery, horn-like, tentacly thing you've got going on there... There's just no precedent for anything like that in our genetic library. I mean, our genies couldn't even think up something that good. It doesn't resemble anything within the realm of human conception. Then why? I mean, I know you guys are new here, but you've got to understand, aliens are a dime a dozen. We've been through the invasions some initiated by them and some by us, The, the interbreeding, the people zoo, the whole... Interdimensional thing, we enslave them, they enslave us, mutants and whatnot. I mean, next place down, you've got a Glorfanks from planet Hemem. Now those guys— You know what? Bronze said. We're just Just gonna go. go. Okay, sure, you know, I really appreciated the homage to mid-20 paranoia, but guys, please, I'm serious. Don't do it again. It would just ruin this whole moment. Krogar wanted to bring back at least one of them to the home world. Half the planet didn't even believe the Earthers were real. What were the chances that aliens which evolved light years away had a body type so similar to the legics? The whole thing, they believed, had to be a hoax. Not just the creatures, but the planet itself. Poor stupid Krokar didn't understand that showing the unbelievers a human wouldn't change a thing. They'd just say that the human was manufactured. Vron never thought there was any point in trying to change their minds. Reality went on just fine, whether the civilians bought into it or not. "'Take me to your leader, please,' Vron said. They'd skipped a the house, having no desire to tempt a glorfnax with their succulent flesh, and had found this man at the next place. He poked only his head out of the door, and his loosened tie hung below like the string from a withering balloon. Uh, "'Okay,' he said. Come on in. The door opened and the man turned away into the house. The three legics followed him across a port-colored carpet with a sudden spring. He must be taking us to his transport gate, Vron thought. Now we're getting somewhere. A woman, presumably the man's mate, reclined in the second room to the left on what looked to be a piece of Earther exercise equipment, She lay half-engaged in an infotainment symbiont which sucked on her head. The woman seemed quite put out by their presence. Honey, the man said to his mate, these guys wanted to see you. I didn't join the Navy to be an infantryman, Zek griped. Vron's left boot was starting to blister his foot. This road alone required more walking than their fudgy little bodies normally packed on in a year, and they stayed on the grass when they could to soften the impact. All around them, members of one of the human slave species shouted madly from their shackles in a shrieking, percussive language. Their voices never seemed to tire. Zek wasn't helping Bron's mood. This is what we get, Bron. Zek thought. For two hundred years, we poke around the fringes of this society so as not to attract attention, and now that we want to do some serious business, we're trapped in the middle of a freak show. What other results should we expect from the most moronic foreign policy ever conceived by sentience? And that's why we're doing this, isn't it? Vron said. Just shut up and deal, Zack. We're pioneers. We're diplomats, ambassadors of the brightest of futures. They're going to put our faces on a stamp someday, by Junction. Who uses stamps anymore? Krogar thought. Don't you start too? Vron thought. Sorry, that wasn't supposed to come out. It's the damn telepathy. A guy needs some time alone every now and again. They decided to split up and cover ground faster. Had they anticipated the scope of this ordeal, they would have taken the ship. But it was four blocks back now, and they were about to hit three different places. The leader, they sought, had to be accessible through one of these three houses. "'May I please meet your leader?' Vron said, lacking the enthusiasm he'd started out with just twenty-eight minutes ago. A pleasant, not-insane-looking woman in a fine-smelling linen suit stood in the doorway. "'I'm sorry. I participate in a non-hierarchical cooperative corporation which frowns upon such concepts as leaders and followers.' "'Of course.' Although Vron wasn't sure of her mailbox's function, he felt great when he knocked it over. He met Zek and Krogar down the street. They were already standing in the middle of the road. Mine was part of a hive mind, Krogar said before Vron stopped. A big hive mind? Vron asked, his taste stalks a-quiver. Five guys and a hyper-evolved chicken. Filth! What about yours, Zek? Hive mind. The same hive mind. Now, this was one human, five hyper-evolved wombats, and a customized zombie teletype machine. Could we see your leader, please? We have no leader. The large lady at the door said, "This one wasn't wearing anything at all and bore the scars of a warrior on her abdomen." Vron swallowed hard, but kept his composure. I have mine, Vron asked. Yes. What have you got, five, six members? Ten trillion, she said. Really? Vron turned and gave his companions a smug nod. Jackpot, he thought to them. We would like to speak to you about trade and mutual defense. Over what worlds do you hold dominion? The woman cocked her head to the side for a moment before saying, Our lands are vast and wide ranging. She swept her hands before her. 48 feet from east to west and 125 feet from north to south. All of the lands within those boundaries and unknowable distances below. Did she say feet? Vron asked. Their feet are small, aren't they? Zek thought. Not as small as ours, of course, Krogar thought, hiking one foot into the air. But small, yes, they are. See for yourself. He pointed at the woman's feet. Stop moving so much, Vron commanded. She might interpret your gestures as hostile. When he decided the woman wouldn't attack, he spoke again. You said feet, right? Yes, enough to shelter all of us and hundreds of trillions more. The three little men looked at each other, dumbfounded. Ah. Uh, Krogar began. He squinted his eyes and turned his face somewhat away, afraid of her reply. How large are the constituent members of your empire? The woman pinched her thumb and index finger together tightly and showed her visitors. Many of us are as large as this, while some of our champions are even larger. So this is it then, right? We are looking at your entire empire right here? Vron asked, pointing from her hair to her feet. Our empire is greater than the three of yours put together. All right, this whole trip was a waste. Zek said. Be quiet! Vron commanded. What's the point? We're not getting anywhere with this planet. We thought Mongo was bad and there were, what, four different factions there vying for control? We've got more than four groups on this road. Mongo was a holiday compared to this. These are not beings with whom we want involvement. You cannot have a coherent culture without a single unifying leader. Whatever the previous expeditions may have indicated, this is not a civilization. This is anarchy! This would have been welcomed with a hearty hear-hear from Krogar, if he hadn't suddenly been devoured whole by the Glorfanks. Vron and Zek bolted for the ship without a thought. "'Your empire has grown beyond ours in an instant!' exclaimed the all-struck hive-mind in the doorway. "'Where the heck did that Glorfanks come from?' ron asked that reddish stucco house down there or so says the rumor mill we have a chance ron it is slowed after eating i can see krogar kicking from inside even burdened by its first course however the gelatinous Glorfangs ran gracefully compared to its prey it was still catching up kick harder krogar zek shouted over his shoulder we've almost got you out This gained them a few more paces, but they were running a losing race. We're done for, Vron said. We're still a hundred lengths from the ship. Damn these stubby legs! Vron, weighed down with the responsibility for the mission, was slightly behind Zek and, therefore, next on the menu. He could hear the slobbering foot-splashes of the creature almost on top of him and feel its hot breath on his neck as it opened its dripping maw. Up ahead stood a single, shining chance. The sovereign nation of Doug Schmidt leaned on his mailbox, eating tacos from a platter and watching the show they were putting on. He was the only Earther in sight. Our people beseech the sovereign nation of Doug Schmidt for aid, Vron shouted. Anything you want. We'll sign wonderful treaties together. Doug didn't seem to notice. He waved his taco to them in greeting. Vron wished a black hole would swallow up him and this whole jerkwater planet. It was no use. Not only did they have no chance of reaching the ship, they had no chance of reaching the sovereign nation of Dug. I can't run anymore, Zack. Neither can I. Goodbye, Zack. Vron felt his little legs give way and even though it wasn't a long way down, he knew he'd never reach the ground before being gobbled up like a little green hors d'oeuvre. But he hit the Duraplaz Road with a smack anyway. Ow! Damn it! Vron felt the enormous bulk of the Glorfanks trample him as momentum carried it past. Thank fate for great wonders. By the time the beast had swallowed Zek, it would be too full to be much of a threat. Vron looked up to find Zek safe in front of him. The Glorfanks sat at Doug's feet. Gobbling tacos, the Dug dropped into its mouth from the platter. They were safe. Two little green men rolled onto their backs and soaked in the yellow starlight filtered through an oddly tinted sky. Gravy! Vron puffed. I love this planet! Vron may have been nothing but a third-rate shloob, but he could see what lay ahead. They'd discovered a supplier of a viable and better-tasting alternative to themselves, and Glorfank's pacification was the key to legic expansion. Of course, Doug being catapulted into galactic powerhood within eighteen hours of his Declaration of Independence would seriously disrupt the balance of power on this street. But leave that problem to some future diplomat. Vron had paid his life debt, the cost of his creation and rearing, with this coup. His future was brilliant. His nesting and breeding rights would be first-rate. He had everything a legic could ever want. Well, that and a doorbell.
2: There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Matthew Sambon Smith. Do please pop over to Blood, Blade, and Thruster. I've just discovered that site, and there will be a link on the front of the website You know, I think there's some amazing stuff over there. I've been looking right through it. Please pop over there. Now, this is where I kind of get on my knees and say sorry to Mr. Jeff Carlson. I was supposed to play this article last week and totally forgot that I had it on my hard drive. Jeff, sorry about that. If you want as well, Jeff's coming on to the Sofa North next week. So do look out for Mr. Jeff Carlson over there. 100 mile an hour Jeff. (laughs) Jeff, I'm so sorry I didn't play this. But, you know, hopefully everyone will still remember your, your story, Gunfight. This was the introduction that's supposed to go with that story. So sorry for that.
1: Hi, I'm Jeff Carlson. I'm here today to talk about my story, Gunfight, at the Sugarloaf Pet Food and Taxidermy. For the good folks here at Starship Sofa. This is a story that originally ran in Asimov's science fiction magazine. It's one of my favorite stories. I don't actually say that about every story that I've written. Some of my stories are my favorite stories, and some of my stories are just, you know, good and cool. This one is one of my favorite stories because it's just sort of wacky and strange and, and high concept. I love the high concept stuff. This story takes me back to a time and a place when my wife and I, and I don't think we were even husband and wife at the time. I think my we were like we were living together in sin. Back when my uh, my girlfriend and I were just living together, we didn't have kids, and even though we both worked full-time, we had so much time on our hands, we just didn't even know what to do with ourselves. You know, you work all day, we would come home, we would watch TV for a few hours, you know, on the weekends we got to sleep in, on Sundays I could watch football all day for like 10 hours straight, drinking and eating nachos, and it didn't matter. We would go out to the movies, we would go out to dinner. My point of all of this is that I also read. I read and I read and I read because I loved to read. That's why I became a writer. And I subscribed to magazines. We read the newspaper. We just had all this time on our hands. And one of the articles that I read in Time magazine, you know, always interested, especially like in the science and the, and the, like the mechanical kind of stuff. And I read an article about a real life taxidermist in Wisconsin who was helping the local wildlife, fish and game department catch out-of-season hunters and poachers and that sort of thing by using animatronic deer. You know, you would take a dead deer, you would stuff it, you know, like those little frogs with the banjos and stuff. You would stuff a real live full deer and then bestow upon it a few lifelike properties. You'd put in some gears and, and your little mechanisms so that the deer could turn its head from left to right or look up and down or maybe even move its its front paws a little bit. And so they would put these, like these zombie deer... They would take these zombie deer and put them in a meadow where I guess there was some expected some foot traffic or vehicular traffic. And they would sit in the bushes with their little remote controls. And when a guy came along with his gun that he wasn't supposed to be there, they would start making the deers move around. And the guy, of course, would whip out his gun and blast the heads off of these things. And then all you know, the, the wildlife fishing game guys would jump out of the bushes and be like, whoa, that'll be 300 bucks, buddy. You're going to jail. And I just thought that was, I just thought that was really cool and bizarre. And it just interesting and fun and unique. And I thought, I am so stealing that. I am so writing a story about that. And that's what I did. Um, I have family in Montana. Spent a lot of time, you know, at their houses. We've had Thanksgiving there and run around in the woods with them. And, um, you know, you don't need to hear my whole life story. But I've spent a couple summers living out of my pickup truck, driving around the west and the northwest parts of the U.S. So I was pretty familiar with that area. And I wanted to set it there. And I made up like a little fictional town called Sugarloaf because they all have cool names like that. And as you might guess from the uh, the long punny little title of the story, gunfight at the Sugarloaf Pet Food and Taxidermy. Pet food and taxidermy. Wait, you're you're stuffing dead animals and feeding them at the same time. Uh, this is like an action comedy. I think it would make an excellent excellent movie. I've toyed with the idea of trying to turn it into a novel. I uh, Would need more elements to bring in to really you know make it larger and bigger than a short story, um, but for a short story it 's got this just this really fun idea, and I introduced you know a caper and some bad guys, and of course they 're chasing each other around and my my superheroine Julie Bouchain, the, you know the super genius who 's behind the uh, the zombie deer, of course she bestows upon them ever greater you know characteristics and qualities, and she also bestows little robot features upon other animals i don 't want to give too much away. Um, But funny things happen. I hope you enjoy the story. I'm actually working on, it's not a sequel, but I'm working on a second Julie Butane short story as soon as I have time for it. I'm on deadline right now for my third novel, which has to take precedence. But I do have a number of little fun little short stories like this that I want to write. Um, It'll run in Asimov's again. Sheila Williams there has asked me for it, which is just awesome. And what else was I going to say? Um, Come to my website. I have the world's greatest website at jverse.com. That's J as in Jeff, verse as in universe, jverse.com. We've got videos. There's uh, free fiction there. You can read a couple of my short stories for free. There are excerpts of my novels, the Plague Year trilogy. We've got all kinds of fun photos and contests and, I'm maintaining a blog these days. Look at me. I am Joe 21st century. I'm recording v- uh, YouTube videos and podcasts, and I have a blog i'm uh, I'm just so hip I can hardly stand it. so I uh, hope to see you there jverse.com, and I hope that you enjoyed our story. Thank you so much.
2: Jeff, I hope you, I hope all is forgiven
1: <laughs> Next
2: up, new titles. So we have new titles again, and comes up the first one is Orphan's Triumph by Robert Butner. I did Orphan's Orphan's Alliance, I think it was, which is the fourth one. This is the fifth one in the series by Robert Butner, and comes in at six ninety nine, around about three hundred fifty pages. Orbit. Mankind's reunited planets now control a vital crossroads after 40 years of fighting, one that secures their uneasy union. The doomsday weapon that can end the Slug War and the mighty fleet that will carry it to the Slug homeworld also lie within humanity's grasp, but it's all far from one. Since the Slug Blitz orphaned Jason Wandra, he has risen from recruit to commander of Earth's garrison on the emerging allied planets but four decades of service have cost Jason not just his friends and family, but his innocence. And when an enemy counterstrike threatens to reverse the war and destroy mankind, Jason must finally confront not only his lifelong alien enemy, but the reality of what he has become after a lifetime of conflict. Praise for Orphan series. John Scalzi says, As much action as any military SF fan could hope for, Kevin G. Anderson says orphanage is raw and real and a hell of a good read. Joe Haldeman says believable as it is terrible. Nice cover on the, f- nice picture on the front. It's still got a, like a future soldier of, you know, a kind of soldier of war. But the last one was a little bit too kind of air Force pilot, looked a bit too real for me. This one in the background is like a spaceship with a kind of a planet and a kind of factory Horizon in the background, you know tall buildings, factory buildings. It looks quite nice a nice kinda of blue turquoisey colour. The final charge approaches. Orphan's Triumph, Robert Butner. 699. Next up is In Ashes Lie by Marie Brenham. Brenham cleverly blends history with fiction. Wonderful says Starburst. An elemental fire burns that will unite dark and light. It is priced at Pound dear, this one seven ninety nine comes in round about four fifty pages. Above, King and Parliament vie for power in a tired aftermath of a bloody civil war. In the deeper fairy realms below, a similar conflict rages as forces of rebellion align themselves against the otherworldly Onyx court. And in a humble bakery in London's Pudding Lane a spark will ignite the sleeping city that will force all, high and low, roundhead and cavalier, human and fair, to set aside their differences and join forces to save their home from annihilation. On a quiet morning in September 1666, two worlds are about to change forever. Praise for Marie Brenham. Stunningly conceived and exquisitely achieved. Publishers Weekly. Publishers Weekly go top of the class with that little kind of blurb. Fascinating, Brenham delivers admirably. Time Out. A tale that's rich in plot and character, Locus. Reminiscent of Neil Gaiman's work, Engaging, SFX. Sci-Fi Now says, a genuinely enjoyable read. Like, say, 799 Orbit, In Ashes Lie by Marie Brenham. Nice cover as well. It's got. It's actually got a real person on the front and. I like I say, I'm normally not that keen on them ones. In the distance, you've got like the, the city of London's raging fire, and then you've got this kind of porcelain character at the front, in you know, all kind of veil, you know, not veils, but all kind of white lace material. Yes, quite like that one. Next up is a really big chunky book. It is Kevin J. Anderson's new The Edge of the World, book one of Terra Incognita. Nice cover again, really nice cover. It's got, in the top left-hand corner, it's got like a a medieval-looking compass surrounded by sea serpents. You know, kind of gold brass-colour sea serpents. Very nice. In the bottom, you've got what looks like a Viking warship, you know, like in a storm seas, which is really good as well. An age of discovery, a quest for freedom, and a search for the ultimate treasure. Two nations' traditional enemies have finally forged an uneasy peace. But all it takes is a single tragic accident to destroy the truce and the world is once more cast in the fires of war and this time the flames may burn until nothing remains. From the highest lord to the lowest servant no man or woman will be unchanged by the conflict. But while the war rages across both continents a great quest will defy the storms and the sea servants to venture beyond the horizon where no maps exist to search for a land out of legend. Terra incognita, the blank spaces on the map, past the edge of the world, marked by only the words, Here be monsters. Oh, come on, bring that on. In a perilous undertaking, there will be always the impertuous, the brave and the mad, who are willing to leave their homes to explore the unknown, even to the edge of the world. Price that, 12 Come, 99 meaty chunky one, comes in at nearly 600 pages. I think this will be my book of the week. Kevin J. Anderson's The Edge of the World, Book 1, *Terra Incognita. There you go, new titles, like you say, the Kevin J. Anderson one, Edge of the World. In Ashes Lie, Marie Brenham, and... where have I put it? Orphan's Triumph, Robert Butner. Three books, all from Orbit. Go check them out. So that's it. Oral's Delights, show number 89, Put To Bed. I hope you've enjoyed it. Do think about donating to the sofa. Do think about the £2.50 monthly subscription. Where you get these sanatorium shows by my good self, a private members' club, let us know about the forums. It' would be nice to hear other people's views. You know Do we need the forums? Do we need Google Wave? Let us know. Starships over at gmail.com Until next week or until next, sofa for I will see you when I see you, just like to say. Good night from me. Ooh.
0: Survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of. A
6: valuation so procedure machine. Shovel set for wash. Here will be opened In Two.